0: This week we're going to talk about something a little more professional. Maybe I, I brought in my most professional filmmaking friend. So if if I'm Snapchat, he's HBO. Nick Thomas is here. Hey Nick.
1: Hey man, how's it going? We're in studio. That's to- pretty
0: funny. <laughs> <laughs> we're in studio together. Which I just want to I want to like point out when we're in the same room. So yeah, Nick's a Calgary based film. Are you Calgary? Do you identify as Calgary based?
1: Yeah, like I, I've had my whole career here for sure. So I'm Calgary based, but I definitely work all over. So,
0: And as I often say with guests on here, you got to check them out immediately so that you know what we're talking about, get a point of reference. I mean, right off the bat, Nick, where could people just kind of see an example of what you do? What's the easiest way?
1: Yeah, uh, my website is uh, nickthomasdp.com. Uh, Instagram is a good place to check out my work as well. And it's just the handle is Nick Thomas. Also on Vimeo as well as uh, Vimeo slash Nick Thomas. And how would you describe your job and work and uh, what do you do? And what I do? I'm a director of photography. So I mostly work on, um, you know, lately it's been trying to focus a little bit more on narrative work and feature films. But I've definitely done a lot of uh, a big background in, Music videos, commercial work, documentary work, so a little bit of everything over the years. And yeah. it's,
0: it's really good, I should point out. I mean, you're not going to say it, but mm. I'll, I'll say it for you that it's really excellent quality. It's as, as good as cinematography can look. So,
1: Well, thank you very much. Mm. I appreciate that. I think it's uh, coming up to doing this for 17 years now, so I think it takes a little little while to kind of figure it out, yeah. if you will. And I feel like in the last maybe three or four years, I've just started to uh, figure it out.
0: Well, part of the conversation I want to have here is the contrast of what you do and what I do. Because in a way, we do the same thing. You know, we record video and edit it together. Totally. But our our actual jobs end up being pretty different. And so I want to go over some of the common ground and some of the big differences. I think one of them right there is that in the sort of social media production. Actually, maybe I should describe what I do. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I always it's always kind of ambiguous here. It's like, yeah, I take photos and make videos. But uh, yeah, the way that my actual business works is that Anya and I have basically a production company together and we'll create whatever clients need, usually at a really small scale. So it's usually just the two of us, maybe one or two more people helping out, uh, maybe a- additional models if Anya is not in it, but often she is, and it'll often tie into social media so that means that either the brand or company is using what we shoot as part of a web promotional thing Mm -hmm. or it's tied into that Anya will be also posting about it or sometimes I will then now I mean YouTube has become more of my business lately I've been doing more sponsored videos as well as on Instagram there'll be sponsored content there and also this podcast is sponsored sometimes so it's sort of yeah like integrating photography and video into different types of content creation, but it's, it's, it's really varied. There's a lot of yeah. different parts of it. But the, some of the key differences is that there's we're, we're working smaller, like much less crew, as I said, it's just two of us, whereas you are working with a full team. But uh, what I was going to get at a second ago, with all that social media stuff, say producing for YouTube, a big difference is that on YouTube there seems to be a value for youth. You know, It's like people feel like if you're under, if you're over 30, you, you can't do it. You know, you're already, right. you've already expired and you're past the YouTube time. Yeah, totally. Um, you don't get it. Whereas with cinematography, you age into it. And that's true. I, I yes. think a lot of people, like, you're not ready until a certain age. I think you don't find a lot of, you know, great cinematographers that are definitely under 30. I mean, it's less common. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah like i think it it does take a lot of time to kind of figure out the craft and how to know how to work with with teams and and definitely what i do is uh, you know i constantly say it's a team sport and and you're only as good as the the people around you and and kind of knowing where their strengths and weaknesses are and and how to work with them is a big part of what i do and i do think there are a lot of um i think people want to look to that experience on set and in it's, it, I call it creative problem solving. And what we do, you have a goal when you get the set and, and how do you bring, you know, 30, 40, 50 people together to realize that same goal. Sometimes that does just only come from experience and, and doing it a long time. And I think a lot of people want to kind of turn around and, and see the kind of the gray haired uh dp on set and and just be like well he's been there done that or she's been there done that and we want to follow that person i can only assume
0: the grays in your beard are fake that you're (laughs) you're bleaching it just to give yourself some authority
1: yeah i think that's where the grays are starting to come in a bit for sure over the last (laughs) so many years
0: okay i'm not going to make you admit your age but how would you rate your work in your 20s like if you look back at the stuff you were doing early in your career does it stand up today are you still proud of it
1: that's a I think that's a good question I mean I do every once in a while kind of look back down memory lane a little bit and uh, check out past work and I definitely can see uh, an evolution in the work which uh, which I think is good I think the the day you kind of stop evolving or trying to uh challenge yourself on on set and with uh projects and in certain setups uh that's the day that um you're kind of dead if you will and you, you don't continue to grow so yeah i can happily say i think i see a bit of an evolution in in the work i did but then sometimes you see those little those little glints of what you were trying to do or, you know, where you wanted to go with that. And maybe sometimes you're like, Oh, that was pretty bad. Or sometimes you're like, "Eh, maybe that wasn't so bad, you know, like it was okay.
0: Were you shooting film at the time? Like, is that an era you were part of or were you always in video?
1: it, It was, it's always been digital for me. And, and it's interesting as I actually kind of more in the late nineties, like I never went to film school actually. And in the late nineties, I was doing uh, graphic design and web design and a small part of that program actually just touched on a little bit of uh, digital uh, video, you know? So at the time I actually shot uh, like a skateboard video and then I edited it and um, it just, and then I would, started working with I was a snowboard rep for a little while too so I did a a snowboard uh, team videos or uh, promotional videos for some riders Um, and so for me I think in part of this world we live in now I was luckily able to learn quite a few things uh, even from the internet and reading articles and I think the best way of you know to learn is by actually doing it and getting out there and there's no better experience than actually getting your hands dirty and, and making mistakes yeah, and kind of sure. growing I mean, that way. Right. I have so similar background of doing
0: yeah. more uh, design and web production and then gradually getting into photo and video. Yeah. And I, I think it's not that uncommon of a thing. I think it's also becoming more common for people to be self-taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be interesting if one of us had gone to film school, school so we could kind of compare yeah. if it's worth it. But I mean, I typically think it's, it's a bit of a stretch to justify these days. Like, if it were if it if you slot into that perfectly like there are there's a lot to gain from it yeah. but it's expensive and you really can create a career without
1: it um, um i think what's good about film school not by going myself but just uh, from what i would gather and talking to other people what mm-hmm. it would have been like i think there's some good fundamentals there and some some theories that are kind of universal and, and will still, you know, kind of stand the test of time, even mm-hmm. though technology and, and maybe some certain approaches might change. Um, but I also think it's some of the, you know, it's like the contacts that you make too, right? Is right. all those people you just keep working with them, most of them might end up in the industry. Some people right. might have gone to film school just to try it and kind of fall off and go get a real job and decide they want to make some money. And, uh, but yeah, they, they are those people and those collaborators and, and people that I, I think you would continue to kind of work with and keep in touch with yeah. over the years. You know, I think there's probably a lot of good, um, teams, say like a director and DP or a writer that might have all gone to school together and, and kind of have those contacts still. I think uh, in part of this industry, it is important to find those people that you get along with and you really do like to, uh, work with they're they're very long hours on set and a lot of days you know consecutive days sometimes on those longer form projects and uh, you know the biggest thing is you just want to be able to get along with everyone at the end of the day uh, you want people in your corner in hour twelve fourteen that are still mm-hmm. have a positive attitude and still still working towards the end goal
0: yeah yeah, yeah. I, I definitely am jealous of people that go to film school <laughs> like I yeah. still kind of look at it now I'm like well I'm working in this field but it'd be kind of fun just to hang out at a school and like talk to other people, like be around other people that all want to do this all yeah. the time. And like, you're all that experience of like, you're all learning the new things every day. Totally. It's really, it feels good. Yeah. Nice. Well,
1: and I think, you know, feeding off each other that way as well and being into the same kind of things, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, talking about films on a daily basis, it's uh, I think that's all good. Well, good In the future. It's, it's
0: the, by far, one of the biggest differences between us two is that so often I'm in a like pretty small bubble. Like my group of collaborators is just kind of comments on the internet in a way, yeah, right? It's the yeah. videos that I watch, community
1: you're sharing with, totally, yeah. The stuff yeah. that
0: I learned from, like the people that I watched to that taught me the techniques that I used, and then the people that respond as I teach techniques back to them. But I don't have real humans around me that much to bounce ideas off of and like, you know, it's just the two of us a lot of the time or sometimes just me. So I, yeah. I, I often like, I, I envy that bit of being able to have just kind of the the team atmosphere, mm-hmm. but you also get a little addicted to the flexibility of just doing absolutely anything you want. You don't need any permission from anybody. Yep. Nobody has to say yes to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's very true. And actually, um, just as of this year, almost coming up to a year now, after owning a, a production company with a, a lot of great other people, um, I, I stepped out on my own as a cinematographer. And uh, so that's been a little bit different for sure. Like you said, just kind of being a little bit in my more in my own bubble where... Before I was on a day-to-day basis going in, you know, to an office with everyone and mm-hmm. and just those chatting and collaborating with things, it's it's definitely a little bit of a different experience for sure. So if, if
0: somebody is aiming to do what you do now, mm-hmm. what's some actual useful advice? I mean, film school, optional.
1: Yeah, I, but... I think the journey is different for everyone, and but I do think it is just uh, shoot lots and shoot everything. Uh, you know just constantly like take away don't maybe look at every shoot as like oh it's just that type of content or whatever and just try and uh, maybe challenge yourself with something doing something different with it Uh, maybe challenge your clients with it a little bit and uh, it's a good chance to to try something and i think every shoot i've done over you know these 17 years now, I, I feel like I've probably learned something from that. So I think the the more you can just get out there and, and do it, the better off or the more you'll kind of learn and grow from well, it. You know?
0: A really specific practical challenge is that, let's say I wanted to get into your field right now, or a, a younger person has been shooting on their own for a while. They know how to operate as a one-man crew and do all the basics, but then they want to get to a level where there is – somehow a budget for more than one person to work on this. Yeah. Right. That's always a, challenge. How, yeah. How, how, do, well, how did that transition work for you? I guess, because obviously it's different for everybody, but
1: uh, I think it's a, a bit of baby steps, if you will. Um, I don't think it, it's not something that happened overnight and I still think there's, there's a big challenge and, and ahead of me to go to the next level and to the next level, you know, like, uh, some productions, you know, have, uh, you know, I'd say there's still like an indie, film budget and you know you you need to kind of know your limitations when even when you're on those shoots uh knowing what you can actually you know what lights you can actually how much time it's going to take to set those up how much adult how long a dolly track takes to set up uh, those kind of things so i think it's uh yeah i think you know it is getting to know how to work with teams and know how to motivate people and knowing what you know, what your grip and electric team and what your camera ke- team can do to help move you quicker and, and achieve some bigger setups. And stuff. Well, the but- other
0: members of the team would almost be in a different situation because, you know, I'm closest in my role to cinematography. Yep. Doing it by myself. But if you're just a grip. Yep. And you're you not be, yeah like what were you doing before you were just gripping by yourself <laughs> without uh, any, anybody yeah, shooting
1: i think you know networking is good uh for sure and there's definitely you know there's i've definitely done the one man band style shooting myself uh it's not something i think it it's trying to challenge those productions when they come up a bit too and say like i just know i'm starting to get to i guess a level where if someone it comes in and i go well i really would kind of need a first and second ac i'm gonna need a grip electric team of you know five to six people maybe Mm -hmm. four minimum Mm -hmm. but it also you know you kind of look at what what you're going into for the shoot and what you're trying to achieve and you start to go okay well it's this budget so i know we can only have you know this size lighting and it probably only requires this size crew uh, to do those things as well, but I think yeah, it's just it's experience and kind of just working up to that as well.
0: Can we really quickly burn through some definitions for people that don't know them. What, what yeah. does a
1: grip do? Oh no, <laughs> in three, three words or less. <laughs> <laughs> three words or less. They hang out on set. Uh, no, the the grip team is uh, you know there's the grip and electric team, and the electric team is more in charge of like the lighting and the electrics on mm-hmm. sets, and that might be uh, the running the. All the electric out even to like the hair and makeup or video village and, and out to the lighting and running it off a generator right. where all the grip team is in charge of more of um, all the gripping, <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> which is just be all, like more of the, the rigging uh, yeah. of things on set. Yeah. And um, it, yeah, hey, how that. about first AC? Uh, so they're the the camera system which is also the focus puller. Mm-hmm. uh they're kind of a, a bit of the head of the camera department in in a way as well unless i uh, have an operator i i generally tend to be a, a director of photography and an operator as well i i do kind of like to still kind of like to find my own frames but uh the more that i've been doing some of these bigger productions though i'm starting to, to see a bit of a need or desire to uh, maybe be more at the monitor a little bit with the director and being able to kind of see the image as a whole through those eyes and and then just be on the radio with my grip electric team and to be able to to do changes cool. and stuff sometimes you do get stuck behind the camera and the million
0: dollar bit. question what is a cinematographer uh, Yeah, how do you how do you sort of see good. yourself fitting in between Director and yeah, and your, like I, the rest of your I team.
1: ultimately, as a cinematographer uh, or director of photography, I, I see myself as um, you know there to realize the director's vision. Uh, so hopefully, you know, very early on in a, in an, any size of production, you're meeting with the director and and discussing you know references and and how to approach certain scenes and how to how to cover things. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you got to pick your battles depending on you know how much time you know you have and this one deserves a little more time a bigger setup and stuff like that so so essentially there i'm I'm there to realize the director's vision because they're constantly getting pulled you know in a million different directions generally on set uh so once they've kind of worked with their actors and done some blocking and i've i've been there present with that and discussed that with them as well it's then they generally leave the set and then it's up to me and the, the grip electric team to, to light it and, and to have it all ready. So when, and then bring them the actors back. Um, so with that, then also communicating to my camera team of, you know, lensing choice and, and how, you know, if it's handheld, how this handheld build might be for this certain shot. Uh, if there's certain filters we might be using, um, Things of that nature.
0: Right. typically it can vary whether you or the director making some of these choices, right? Like say lenses. I'm sure it's just like a kind of a collaborative thing. It depends on exactly what you're doing and the situation.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it also really depends on the director. Uh, some directors are, are definitely more of maybe, uh, I'd say like a, an actor's director or a writer. Uh, and some, they don't, they might not really know anything about lensing and what, you know, a 40 versus an 85 might do or feel to the, to how to, how the audience feels right. based on that lensing. So it, it, it really depends. And it, it is getting to know that with each director, like some directors are, you know, DPs or shooters or cinematographers themselves. Yeah, where they come from, I mean, if they yeah. came from
0: theater, they're going to have a different perspective than if they came from. Being yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, and, and definitely it's sometimes that's why it, it, it is getting to know that director and it is getting to know like, the certain kind of language and how they'd like to approach things and then even you know the mood of a certain scene or the colors of the lighting we might use to to help um Mm -hmm. with kind of the storytelling at the end of the day obviously we want to make it look pretty but at the same time sometimes you know it needs to serve the story at the end of the day and not just kind of go overboard in terms of some crazy look
0: something i always learn a lot from is doing the edit so for me, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm there all the way through. I sh- I shot it. I was typically holding the camera, and then mm-hmm. I'm sitting there in the editing bay, and uh, whatever I did wrong is yeah. right there in front Turning of me. At
1: yourself. Yeah, oh, why didn't I get more coverage?
0: Do myself? you yeah. do you end up sitting through the edit a lot? I mean, I figure sometimes just the director must be there.
1: Yeah, generally it, it is the director who will see the project through and sit with the editor. It, it's, it, it but like, kinda, so are you missing out is kind of what I'm getting at. Like, Yeah, you. I was going to say sometimes, depending on my relationship with the director and maybe that project, I might be invited in mm-hmm. to the editing process a little bit. I fortunate enough uh and generally get brought into is more in say the color grade uh once they've got a picture lock on things and that's where i would then sit in on a colorist with a colorist and kind of work on the final look of the film and that's where maybe i can try and fix some of my mistakes if you will <laughs> right. or, or sometimes you're on set and you're no like i just don't have time to you know maybe fly off that light but i'll power window or you know do a little something in post to to do that oh, right. so that's yeah, you that knew moment that where you were going to do it yeah and take. i know what you know i've sat i do some color grading myself and have sat with enough uh, talented colorists and seen what they can do that i i know a bit of what we can do in post and and not say we're going to fix it in post but just go like if there's certain shots that need a little something uh generally i try and get it in camera as much as possible and then you know i think of color grading as enhancing um but yeah like depending on the size of the production i know i think probably the further and hopefully the higher up i go in my career they'll there unfortunately would maybe be less involvement with the post-process where i i do you know like even from the music to like kind of everything through the the post-production process. Like I would love to be involved as as possible uh, as much as, you know, not having too many cooks in the kitchen about things. But Mm -hmm. there are certain, you know, discussions that you're hopefully having before we get to set and then we're shooting them that you hope they get kind of, Realized in the post-production process as well. So you hope to kind of have some, maybe, some input on that, or you hope that maybe that the producer or the director kind of respects your opinion, I guess, if you will, yeah. uh, and is willing to kind of, you know, fire you a, a rough cut or a fine cut of something and go, yeah, what do you think? Right. And any ideas on this? Or, well, there's yeah. always this
0: trade-off as you're aiming for bigger and bigger projects. Because I, I also experienced this in the design world, as you want to work on bigger things you typically, unless you're really lucky, will find yourself having less and less control as the scale of the project goes up, yep. which is always exciting. Like, it only seems like a good thing beforehand. Right. You're like, we've got this big team. We've got a bigger budget. We can t- realize all of our biggest dreams. Like I'm going to feel so creatively satisfied after this because my dreams are coming true. Yep. And then you go through the project and you realize that scale can really... Remove, remove you out of some of the things you would have liked to typically
1: have control over. Yeah. I think there's a lot more players involved at that point. And uh, especially, you know, a little bit, maybe even some of the commercial uh, work as well, when you do have uh, agencies involved as well as a client. Uh, sometimes I think maybe when it is more of just a narrative project, it is just kind of, there is no end client Mm-hmm. It, and there's not as many people involved. It really is just kind of ultimately is it is the director's film uh, and, and it's their name on it and it's, you know, it's their vision. So okay. it did ultimately should fall on their shoulders of, of how it comes together. Right. So. But yeah, I think so. When the projects do start to get a little bit bigger, there are more people involved, with it, and maybe less and less. You're just like kind of there to execute and kind of bring your expertise. Have you kind of seen
0: a, a scale that feels like just like the right balance to you, or do you want to just kind of keep going as you know as as big as you can? Because it's it's a little different when you're, I guess, anything above the line, right? Like if, if you're a yep. DP or a director <clears throat> or a few other titles, mm-hmm. you'll probably maintain your creative control. I think yep. it's it's a lot of the other roles that. Maybe get a little bit diminished as.
1: Yeah, I think uh, when you're above the line, there's definitely you know that's you know why you're kind of being brought to the table is to kind of bring your creative your your vision or your voice to the project, and I, I think that's hopefully partly why you were chosen. Hopefully, right. it's like oh, I get along well with this person as well. But I do think it is. Yeah, that's why you were hired is to kind of bring your unique voice and together with with everyone else's. Yeah. What was, the, what was the first part
0: of that question? what are we talking about again yeah yeah uh, let's talk uh, about
1: let's talk about gear. This episode is brought to you by
0: Cronaby Connected watches. You've heard me talk about Cronaby before. I'm wearing one right now, in fact, the Nord, which is a pretty simple design. It's one of the more minimal designs that they have, and uh it's got a leather strap, and at first glance, you may not realize that this watch is able to do anything more than tell the time. It looks like just a very well designed and constructed quartz watch. But there's a lot more going on here. It has all of the smart connected features that you would expect in a modern smartwatch, but with the precise industrial design that's going to make you want to wear it on your wrist all the time. There's a few reasons that this is my go-to travel watch, and I bring it with me when I'm on the road. First of all, it doesn't need to be charged all the time because the battery lasts for up to two years. So it's one less cable that needs to be in my bag. And then when I compare it to my mechanical automatic watches, Those I just forget to change as I shift time zones. Like if you're going to two different places on one trip, I hate looking at my wrist and not being sure that it's telling me the right time. With the Chronobee, it's always syncing with my watch. So I know as soon as I look at it, it is telling me the local time zone. This may not sound like a big deal, but I really appreciate this feature. So go to Chronoby.com and check out some of their designs or also go follow them on Instagram where you can see what these watches look like. Thanks again to Chronoby for sponsoring the show. For you, I know that you uh, you typically shoot Alexa for video, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you use Fuji for a lot of your stills.
1: Yeah, like a, quite a, well. I guess about three or four, three or four years ago now, I was uh, Canon Explorer of Light uh, on their cinema side. But uh, at that time, I was shooting, you know. With, like most people on a 5D uh, Mark II and, and yeah, it's all kind of us, yeah. jumped everyone in at that point. Uh, and so I was, you know, pretty heavy into Canon for a while. Uh, just recently last year, uh, this last year, I've done a couple of projects with Fujifilm uh, first with the X-H1 and then with the X-T3. Uh, you oh, know, and also friend of the podcast, uh, Jordan Drake and Chris Nichols,
0: uh, yeah. other Calgarians. So if anybody watches the DP review YouTube channel or previously camera store TV channel, Nick's work is there as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. he has done YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, no, definitely done some YouTube stuff with those guys for sure. Um, yeah. And then this, this last one actually with Fuji, uh, they contacted me again before the X-T3 came out, uh, and said, there's this new camera coming out, would be interested in doing a project again, but this time, um, unlike with, you know, the, the camera store folks, uh, Jordan, and Chris, uh, we decided to do an original short film. Saw some
0: than, stills from that. I, it looks pretty cool. Yeah, no, thank I don't you. know what it is. It, yeah, it's, it's called it's The Memento
1: Me. of Life. Yeah. Uh, it's actually on the Fujifilm Global website now. Oh, okay. uh, link which, in description then. Yeah, yeah, throw it in there. That'd be great. I did it. I have a little bit of a behind the scenes write up uh, as well for it and, and just kind of what we went into that with. And uh, it's kind of cool. Matthew Libatique uh, did a piece for Fujifilm as well with that camera. And it's kind of, you know, both of our work side by side up there. And <laughs> I'm no Matthew Libatique, but it's kind of uh, nice to be rubbing shoulders a little bit in, in that sense. So um, yeah, so that was a fun project to work on. It was, uh, it ended up being about a seven minute short film, I contacted a director writer, a friend of mine, and and he sent me a couple scripts. And this one had to do with uh, kind of the history of portrait photography, uh, and a daguerreotype photographer. And, um, so it was a period piece based in kind of the 1860s, 70s. So, um, uh, going into it, I thought, oh, let's do this one, but it's the biggest challenge mm-hmm. because all of a sudden we're going to need wardrobe. <laughs> and we ended up having like 30 extras and like wardrobe for them. And we actually shot it at Heritage Park here in Calgary. Just like a
0: old timey town.
1: Yeah. So, it's, so it, production value wise, it it had that, but it was a very small budget we were working with and, uh, we spent a, a good majority of our budget on being at heritage park and the insurance to be there. And then the rest, you know, we ended up having like almost a crew of and cast and crew of 40 people. So even just to feed them and
0: I'm going to watch it as soon as this is done. Yeah. That's, like that's it's, awesome.
1: it's, it, yeah, I think it's, it, it turns out because cool you still are
0: switching back and forth between using the more inexpensive kind of consumer level stuff and uh, the bigger flashier.
1: Cameras. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've had an Alexa mini now i guess two and a half years and i think it was the first time i actually shot with alexa was about four years ago now and it was kind of (laughs) the first time i did it was a little bit like oh i get it now (laughs) like i i understand this this kind of ruined me for life that Mm -hmm. like i need to pretty much try to shoot with alexa going forward and uh, that she was also shooting anamorphic uh, lenses mm-hmm. on these like vintage Cook uh, Crystal Express lenses through Panavision. And uh, after just having that combination, I was just like totally hooked, I, I guess, if you will. It's just old, like, oh, this is the look I've been going my for. My moment and for Alexa like,
0: was at uh, NAB a, a few years ago. Yeah. And I walked up to the Alexa booth and they had a T, a, just a TV on. And I was kind of looking up at it and I'm like, What's this? Like, what's this weird, boring short film that they're playing? And I just stared at a few seconds. Then I realized it was a live camera, and like my, <laughs> that, I was slightly in the shot. And I started moving. I'm like, wait, this out of camera looks yeah. perfect. This could
1: be a movie, and
0: we're just standing on the show floor. Yeah, here we um, are on
1: the ADB floor. Right? Yeah,
0: there's just something about the look that just yeah really it's can't just, be matched.
1: Those those pixels are are so great on that camera, and it's it's the skin tones, and it's just you can. It's really just hard to describe. Um, I've definitely shot, you know, with Red and and Canon after being an ambassador for them for a number of years and uh, some other cameras, Sony and things like that. But it is just, yeah, the the colors and the Mm -hmm. skin tone and they're just, they're very good at what they do. And, you know, I've heard it actually in another podcast be described as that. I mean, Aerie only focuses on the high end and that's all they make. So there's a reason that their products do, you know, maybe cost a bit more, but once you've kind of used them a little bit, (laughs) but once you use them, you're like, you're just, it works and it just works so well. It looks so good. And like all their gear is just, it's, it's great. So you understand that, you know. When it is a multi-million dollar production, and you do potentially have hundreds of people on set, and there's a reason this camera is, just keeps performing right. at a high level, and it doesn't kind of slow you down. Uh, so, as well,
0: uh, what are you choosing for lenses most of the time? Are you do you own your own kit, or do you rent them typically? Um, and I mean, for people that don't yeah. work with <clears throat> this stuff at all, like Alexas are quite expensive. A lot of people just rent them. Like you, definitely, it's not common to to own them. So, even working cinematographers may. Live their whole career without purchasing one
1: of these. Totally, it, it's a tough balance, and I think you know, honestly, living in Calgary, uh yes, there's you know, say White's camera and Panavision and things in town that you can get an Alexa from. But <clears throat> I've always just really, I guess, enjoyed or uh, have, having that freedom of, of owning gear. I hate and being, renting and,
0: shit. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's so nice yeah. just, and you you can kind of mm-hmm. dial in your package exactly how you you like it with the hand grips and where mm-hmm. the monitor goes and mounting tear decks and all of those things so i think it's um yeah like I, I the only one in alberta that owns an alexa mini and i do think that's uh it's it, i guess a great kind of advantage if you will because i do it is kind of the film stock that i i prefer to shoot on and mm-hmm. so but then the balance of that is you know you don't want to get maybe too used, I don't know, I want to say too used to that <laughs> package, bit, but it yeah. you do, you do want you to, want to, to be remain hooked. open right. to what other, you know, maybe camera systems that come along. So, you know, I do keep my I ear to the ground, if you will, of, of what new cameras, what's red doing, what's, you know, everyone else is doing a bit, but I still, I still think at this point that is, you know, mm-hmm. the camera that's working great for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I absolutely love the mini. I love the, the size and the build of it and, and what you can do with it. It's to me. It is kind of like it's the most perfect or my most favorite camera, I guess, if you will, I've ever shot with. But I would be very much like to try some of you know, like their LF or the Alexa sixty five mm-hmm. uh, things like that at at some point. So, just yeah, putting it out there, Alexa. If you're yeah, uh, yeah, Aerie. if you're listening. Yeah. So, but I guess going back to your question of of lenses, I I did just um, actually NAB two years ago. There was a new company that came out called at- Atlas anamorphic lenses uh so it's they're they're orion series and uh so we did put a pre-order in for those they were supposed to deliver in q1 and uh they did show up uh this you know august of this past year so a little late maybe about five or six months later than what i expected mm-hmm. so because for me like i i'm very much hooked on shooting anamorphic i love the look of it i love the the painterly look the bokeh you know all right anybody you know, doesn't know what's anamorphic uh so anamorphic is uh there's either come in like uh different squeezes i guess what it does is it it takes image and squeezes it into kind of a four three uh the ones that i have are two times anamorphic so then in camera or imposed uh some cameras will do it like the mini will do it in, in camera it de-squeezes the image into uh, a widescreen kind of two three nine aspect ratio so so it's shooting kind of a, a true widescreen uh, image instead of say shooting, um, you know, a larger image and then just kind of cropping right. the top and bottom yeah. off of it, just letterboxing it. Yeah, yeah. So it'll give you a letterbox kind of right out of the yeah. camera. But as a result of that, it is, does give the image a, a a lot more characteristic to it. And to me, when I see stuff, and definitely now that I've been shooting anamorphic for a number of years now. I watch old films or something that I've seen and I'm just like, instantly it's like, Oh, that's anamorphic. Like right. you can kind of spot it mm-hmm. right away now. And it, it made me start to realize that, Oh, that's, you know, that's that look, but that's also, to me, it does kind of make it feel more like a film. Right. And maybe it's just that more traditional because it did come from more of uh, definitely the film days where, you know, a film gate was in that aspect ratio. So they wanted to, a way to capture a widescreen image on like a a square Mm -hmm. image, you know, on a a piece of film. Uh, So that was the way they could achieve that look. Right. uh, Because if at
0: the time they had used the same size of film and just cropped it, you'd just be giving up you know, effectively, resolution like the yeah. the image quality would degrade because you'd just be using less film per, totally. per image. So yeah,
1: you're kind of throwing away the top and bottom. Yeah. Um, and actually, the the Alexa sensor is is a great four three sensor because you actually are using uh, a good like basically the whole sensor because of the, the size and shape of the sensor. So it is actually a, a very much match made in heaven in terms of uh, shooting anamorphically on it. So, so. something that.
0: When I first bought my expensive lenses, which are, you know, to me, Canon L series, and Mm -hmm. I'm spending one to $2,000 on a lens, that feels like a huge investment and a huge jump, especially if you're used to the either kit lenses or, you know, what a lot of people just use cheaper lenses. Um, And it seems crazy to spend two grand on a lens. How much does cinema and anim- just tell tell our friends how much cinema um, glass well, costs? That's... And and most of all, I mean what I want to get to yeah. is, is why. Like how does it justify itself in yeah. the long run?
1: Yeah. I I mean these lenses, uh, they're a budget-friendly, anamorphic was part of the reason, you know generally, uh, anamorphic lenses. Uh, some of them are quite a bit older, actually. Like I had some Lomo ones from the seventies, uh, which were full of characteristics. And I still love the, the Lomos to this day. Uh, we had them for like seven months and, and now that I've shot with some other anamorphic lenses and seen a lot, you know, some other things shot with, with Lomos. I'm like, man, there's something special about those lenses. I've shot with some kawas that are from the eighties. So yeah, they, I mean, say like a cook A set of Cook anamorphic lenses could be about $50,000 per lens. (laughs) So they're in and around there. And Cook's
0: Uh, one of the standards. I mean,
1: that's what a lot of the things you're watching –
0: Our shot on on that,
1: yeah, totally. Uh, So these ones are about nine thousand US per lens, uh, and I have a a set of three of them. And that was the first three they came out with. And they had a good, you know, if you were an early adopter and were willing to put down a a deposit, you did get a a break on that. So that was part of, you know, the appeal, I guess, of that. And to feed that anamorphic. uh, Wait, I mean, a lot of uh, that cost as well as kind of an anamorphic
0: tax, almost, because I I think right, just less people. There's less demand for anamorphic in general, so they need to be somewhat more expensive for the store. I guess you market.
1: could. Yeah, that's probably part of it. I never kind of thought of that side of it. I mean, you think of. I, I guess um, like, if you buy film. equivalents
0: of like 69. 16, in in another brand that would make both, I bet the anamorphics cost more, right?
1: Yeah, I think it would be part of the rarity. I think I would think part of it is the the science that goes into to making the the glass and how it works uh, mechanically together. But I think that is almost true. Um, you know, you think of like film qu- equipment, almost like medical equipment. Uh, There's a reason it's expensive because it's not produced on a mass scale and the economies of scale haven't been brought down. So it is, it does become very specialized. And I think anamorphic over spherical and especially, you know, prosumer or professional versus consumer, uh, there's definitely, you know, less and less of that as well. I'm actually a feature film that I'm planning um, to film in January coming up here, we're Talking to Panavision right now about getting a package from there. Uh and that are lenses you can't even buy. Uh essentially they're just, you know, mm-hmm. Panavision only. And uh we're looking at like the G Series Anamorphic right now, and and they're, you know, for me, I think they do make some of the best lenses in the world. And I'm I'm very much excited and looking forward to the opportunity mm-hmm. to to shoot on these lenses because they're just I mean yeah, there's that, there's a quality there that you just can't I always replicate.
0: thought there, it was there's a bit of a myth. Um, you know, kind of when I was growing up in the stills world of that, like, at a certain price, you're paying for brand name, you're paying for whatever. And uh, especially with Leica, right? Leica lenses are yep. notoriously expensive. Yep. And I finally, this was a while ago now, things, things have changed a bit. But I was able to compare the, what is it, the Noctilux, I don't remember which is which, the uh, 1.0 50mm yep. to the Canon 1.250mm, right? So this is a $10,000 lens compared to 2000 Yeah, right, but...
1: Yeah, twenty two or And
0: uh at one the the completely crushed the cannon. Like it, it looked it was like sharper, the fall Creamier. off from yeah, the fall off yeah. from the point of focus was so much better, just much better control of chromatic aberration. I mean, that's one of the things that I've after that point I started hating about my cannons is when they're wide open, the, the, just, the purple fringing is, yeah. is monstrous <laughs> and um I really realized it then. I think it started to change with Sigma, to be honest. Sigma started this whole, like, wow, an affordable lens can look great. Yeah. Especially just in terms of, like, technically accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, Sigmas, I don't know if they have a lot of interesting character to them, but they're very precise. They're very...
1: I, I totally agree with that. I think Sigma makes uh, some beautiful lenses. I don't know if they do have a lot of character to them though. I think they're, they're all, uh, i used their cinema lenses before uh, and they were, they were a great set to work with, you know, mechanically and uh, images, you know, razor sharp and stuff. But I think for me, I've started to find that uh, because I have started with some vintage lenses from the seventies and eighties and you know, they're pain in the ass to work with and you know they're all different sizes and things like that but mm-hmm. they just they just seem to have more character uh, to the image and i think that in this day and age and i've heard this described by other people as well but you know you almost have like the sensor is the film stock that you're shooting with so then just look at each manufacturer and what kind of film stock if you will do you want to shoot with and what you get from it but ultimately they are they achieve such a great look now and in shooting a log that it almost it does come down to the lens that really kind of gives you the character right. or the look that way. so so really for me over the last you know three or four years is uh, really starting to research lenses and, and knowing kind of what out, is out there in the marketplace what shot that film Do you, or you follow
0: actually um, I his first name Yedlin uh, Steve
1: steve yedlin, steve yedlin yeah, yeah yeah so dp of
0: uh some of the recent star wars films and he's yeah the reason i love him is he's active on the internet which not, yeah. not a lot of people at that level are yeah um so he's a great follow for anybody who wants to make movies or even I, you're I totally agree. yeah um but so have you looked at his stuff where he's comparing film stocks in mm-hmm. different uh the red and the airy and yeah um, and, okay, an IMAX
1: so, and 65 films. so yeah, he, like, he
0: shoots like a kind of technical test using yeah. all of them yeah and then is basically able to achieve the exact same color with some of them and then also demonstrates how different film treatments from different labs will produce more variety than the different cameras or the different film stocks Yep. and so his point and his theory is that like it's it's really about having a target and knowing what you want your image to look like Mm -hmm. and then being able to like technically achieve it I don't know, can you tell me something more insightful about that? Because I look at his, I mean, you got to check out these links. Like, everybody should read this article, watch these videos. It's a great
1: article. But
0: it's challenging without full technical understanding of what he's actually doing to then pursue that. And like, what do I do with this information that all these cameras could look the same? I still can't get my camera to look like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different kind of formulas like from fil- filtration to the lenses to the sensor uh and then kind of that post production process especially when it did come to film in terms of ways to, to develop it to give a different look. Um one of my biggest takeaways from that in in this kind of resolution war if you will over the last so many years from you know going from HD to 4K to 5K, 6K, 8K, and and beyond uh, now at this point, is that uh, at the end of the day, it it didn't really, no matter how the resolution of it, it didn't make that like a better looking image. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I think, you know, even though the Alexa Mini is kind of really a 3.2K resolution camera, it upscales in camera to 3.8K. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not on the Netflix approved, yeah, which is still so strange, which still just blows my mind. Yeah, so anybody, it's not just, just like you're a shooting true a Netflix 4K. show, you
0: can't choose what is. Probably the most widely used cinema camera.
1: Been kind of the, the, you know, 98% of the Oscar nominated (laughs) films for cinematography have been shot on the Alexa and then you can't, yeah, but it's not good enough for Netflix. (laughs) I honestly think with that one, those, that's almost lawyers speak where they don't want someone to kind of come back and sue them and saying, you're delivering true 4k content. Mm -hmm. And then they look, they find out that camera shot that. And that's like not a 4k camera, but it's, so I feel like that is where they just kind of decided to draw a line in the sand. And it just, that's what it kind of became and then i mean that is it kind of pushed area to come out with the lf they already had the lexus 65 out there which is just very hard to come by it's rental only um but then they they came out with the lf which is just their large format um, which version. is like true 35
0: right like or is it larger than that like didn't they do a, believe know, a quote, it's unquote, actually frame
1: yeah like it's like, a good question <laughs> everybody everybody <laughs> listening google it and uh yeah google it i have actually haven't looked really into the the true equivalent of that actually yeah. and what it is there. But, but it what I 4K? knew they did is they actually just took the same uh, sensor they had and just turned it sideways and then I think did three or four of them in a in and Orion yeah, yeah. just yeah. had them like communicating okay. with each other so to weird. act as one. Yeah. And they were like, we cur- already
0: solved the sensor problem. We don't need to...
1: Well, and that's just it. They literally something. have solved the sensor and problem because they're Red's still using... Every year. Yeah, they're using the same sensor from the original Alexa. <laughs> they released like, what, five, six, seven eight years ago or yeah. something. And it's still to this day the is best. totally, yeah. Like they, they just nailed it with that. So, yeah. Do you watch any of the, do you watch YouTube at all? A little bit. I've, yeah. you know, I, I used to watch a lot more like even Vimeo and stuff. And I don't know, I, after a certain while I just started to, I don't know. I, not as much, I guess. I just kind of concentrated on my own thing a little bit and maybe didn't do as much viewing online. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, I I don't watch, a lot of you like considering I do it I don't watch that much of it. Yeah. But um it's it's really interesting seeing this this melding. Like a few of the guests that I've had on before, I mean it's fu- it, it would be funny that you haven't heard of them because they're large. Their audiences are incredible and they're yeah. working with Red and Alexa cameras to produce YouTube like tech reviews. Right. And it's becoming this really interesting place where like the one man crew or you know it's, they'll have like a, a few people working with them. Are starting work with cine cameras mm-hmm. and i don't know It like i just love watching the these like kind of worlds come together where because we're technical nerds we want things to look as perfect as possible mm-hmm. and then people are like starting to be able to achieve it on uh you know social media <laughs> platforms basically
1: yeah um yeah it's just it's just kind of really taking cool. those production values or what they're putting into it yeah, and yeah. the tools they use what yeah, that some, uh, always kind of like, I don't know, to get on a rant about, you know, like, yes, the iPhone produces a really nice image too. And and sometimes you do have clients who say, well, it's just for the web. But at the same time, I still think when you, you know, you put in that production value and you, even though it might be only viewing it on like a phone or tablet or something, it, it's still like you, I don't know, you could still tell it has a certain aesthetic or quality to there, it. There's such a good or, series
0: that just came out from, you know, Sandwich Video.
1: The no. no okay. I mean, they're
0: they're like my favorite production house or whatever. Yeah. Adam Lissagor who's from the, the podcast uh You Look Nice Today has gone on to have just a great career making hilarious, well-produced videos. They just did a series that I think was called like I don't remember what it's called, but they show, okay, here's what a $1,000 production would be. Here's a 10,000 production of the same commercial. Right. Here's a $100,000. That's very interesting. And yeah. and do them all very well. So yeah. the one thousand dollar commercial shot on an iPhone and it's great. It's still yeah. very good. Yeah. But it, it and then they shoot the ten thousand dollar on a I think it was C two hundred on a Canon. Yeah. And then uh, I think it was Alexa for the hundred thousand dollars, and it is such a good illustration of it doesn't it's like separating like it's the same very talented people creating great creative for all of these, but you really can just focus on like here's the technical differences, here's the challenges that you face if you want to stick to consumer level. Mm -hmm. gear because it's fun. I totally have the opposite message of so many people. So many people are like, the gear doesn't matter. Don't worry about gear. Just go, go make stuff. And like, that can be true, but it also matters. Yeah. And it also makes a real difference too.
1: Yeah. It's definitely a a balance of the two, I think for sure. And I do think, you know, sometimes for me, if you have a great art department and great wardrobe and hair and makeup, and that world is literally sitting in front of you, and you turn an iPhone on it, like it's going to look <laughs> yeah. freaking amazing. Yeah. Cause it's just that world is looks so good and it's maybe been lit so well as, as well. So, I mean, there's definitely the gear and that side of it that, that adds to that. But then there's the other side of it where it's like, yeah, if, if that world is is right there in front of you and you can just take it, then yeah. This episode is brought to you by the camera store. If you've ever
0: looked up camera reviews on YouTube, you've probably come across the Camera Store TV. They have some of the best coverage of all photography. Like, they review everything. They do a great job of objectively talking about it. But if you live in Canada, you also get the blessing of having a great camera store. This is where I buy most of my gear. I've been shopping there for years, and I really appreciate the Camera Store's support of the show. So go to thecamerastore.com if you live in Canada and order your next lens, body, whatever you're getting, or go to YouTube and follow them there because they have amazing content. Thanks again to the camera store for sponsoring the show. Do you have a new iPhone? Do you have like a XS or XR?
1: Yeah, I have the XS Max. Yeah.
0: yeah, the um, I've been really shocked at what the video... Like, have you shot any video on it lately? All of right. a sudden it's doing this... It's doing live HDR all the time, basically. Which right. It used to be that as you switched between photo and video, it couldn't do any of the HDR stuff in video mode. Yeah. It just kind of show you what the sensor saw and that's all it could do. Yeah. And now as long as you're shooting below thirty frames per second, it's combining
1: the darker exposure from like a sixtieth. Interesting.
0: On the fly. So same I, as I haven't
1: uh, actually played with that. Is that did that come in a firmware update or do no, you no, think no, that it's, was it's just just there. to the camera? It's just there. Right? You just okay. have to like yeah. you
0: probably just haven't looked closely. Yeah. But all of a sudden if you do some side by sides, you're like, wait a minute. There's like five more stops. Yeah. range here like it it was a huge jump yeah and it's so red was doing it with hdrx a while ago where they would take basically create two files and then combine them in software yeah but the crazy things the iphone's like on the fly doing it so yeah. I, I haven't done like proper tests yet but i've i have spotted sometimes where in video it's able to to get more dynamic range than the sony yeah which
1: is weird like it's pretty, amazing, like, right? it's they, pretty wild i mean just still yeah. worse There's kind there's more noise more artifacts but look Man. at the size of the sensor, right? It's so oh, tiny crazy. for what it's getting out of it. I think one thing for me is I always wish the iPhone in the photos, there was a way you could like stop it down by two stops automatically within the camera. Cause I find like every time you go <laughs> right. to take a yeah, photo, yeah, yeah, your yeah. lens like, literally right. focus, drag it darker. Yeah. They always tend to overexpose a bit uh, where I'd rather protect those highlights. Right. And then just do a little put a post and bring it kind of back up if it needs it. But yeah. I've always, yeah, if if there's one thing, if anyone from Apple is there's, listening, well, there's third party just apps. add that. I mean, so I've been yeah. shooting
0: more on uh, yeah, what do you Halide use lately. Okay. Um,
1: and I just like put my camera
0: oh. trigger in the swipe left section, the notification Yeah, so it's screen, quick to get to. So I can still get there. And then it's set to, to shoot raw by default. And you can also yeah. leave it on a default exposure setting. So, yeah,
1: like, so you, you can know, take it down like a stop or two or yeah, something. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So
0: that every time you pull it out,
1: it does the, it's good. the exposure. And that's Halide? Yeah, you yeah,
0: yeah. the developer was on here a while ago
1: i'll um, we'll have to check that one yeah, out it's pretty good yeah because i there's the convenience of just having like you know the yeah, yeah, camera you right just on the main there, screen I and know. bam it's there and yeah well it depends but i don't know if easy.
0: you're doing anything with your iphone photos like do you care about them in the end or
1: yeah that's a good point as well uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably, i don't actually care probably not as much yeah. uh, but i still care about images so i still yeah. want to take a good picture but. what do you edit your photos in uh, I use Lightroom. Yeah, do you use Capture One?
0: No, i basically been convinced that it's better.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've been but kind of, of wondering that over the last year or so, yeah. too. I'm I just like, can't, I, I don't I have just, time to so
0: think about Switch. Like, it's just not yeah, an option. Yeah, I've just such got a workflow pain.
1: within Lightroom. Exactly. And, yeah, actually, it's funny, actually, because I have Lightroom on my phone as well. Uh, so just yeah. to be able to go back and forth. Yeah, which is, and, that's great. And it's, and it's actually, a, it's a pretty, you know, versatile app on the phone as yeah. well. And even actually, it's funny when I, You know, travel, say, with the Fuji and stuff, because you can transfer the photos right to your phone via Wi-Fi. Like, I was traveling in Japan earlier this year, and none of my photos actually touched the laptop that I brought with me, and it was just, like, at night in the hotel room as you're kind of falling asleep, just going, like... Yeah, I think I like that one. And I would just beam like, you know, a half dozen, dozen photos over to my phone. And then I'd be just, you know, lying in bed or something in the room and editing them in Lightroom on my phone and then posting them to Instagram or something like right then and there. So it was pretty Crazy interesting right? kind of, yeah, different <laughs> workflow, right? You're so used to like waiting to maybe get home and then dumping all these pictures. And it's like, God, I have pictures from like Europe and New York and Japan, like I still have like eight thousand pictures sitting, sitting there around. that it's just like oh, one yeah. day I, I need to go through all these pictures, <laughs> oh, <for sure. laughs> and actually sort through and get some selects out of it. But
0: what are some yeah. actual like practical tips normal people can employ to get things looking more cinematic to make things look like you? I mean, you have a, you have a fantastic look. Well, thank you. Like what's um, a, what's a
1: thing you do that helps with that look? I I think for me, I do embrace the dark side a little bit. And maybe that look isn't for everyone. Yeah. But I do tendly, generally, tend to try and expose it a little bit, a little bit lower. But that, I mean, that um, can be pretty but,
0: counterintuitive, especially when you're starting earlier. Is that yeah. you're, you're kind of taught that there is correct exposure, and yeah. that's much more where I shoot. Like, if you look at my work, my stuff is in the cor- correct range, which would be more, more of a commercial look, right? Yeah. Like yeah. more of what you'd see in magazine photography or. A commercial like on tv yeah. right yeah. Or, or a, or a or romantic a, comedy yeah um whereas yours would uh, like indicates more of a drama or a you know like it it's set it puts you in a different
1: world where a little bit of a different mood or vibe to it for yeah sure. where it's like yeah. if
0: everything's well lit you feel safe you're yeah. not worried about anything everything's just comfortable yeah and so in your world there's a little more like you don't quite know what's in the shadows.
1: Yeah, it's a little darker yeah. <laughs> moodier. But so is that just I'd, as simple as like exposing darker? I think a, a little bit for sure. I mean, sometimes you, you still want to like expose it properly mm-hmm. uh, and know that you can, in the grade, uh, take it a certain way to give it the aesthetic you're going for. I don't know if there's generally just one tip though at the end of the day. It's tough to say because I think every, every camera has its, its sweet spot, if you will. And I think once you really kind of and that's maybe part of what owning your own camera you really do kind of start to find that sweet spot for that camera uh where it really just does perform and and i don't know i think maybe it's a little bit different for everyone though in terms of what what that sweet spot is for them a little bit you know and their and their look and their workflow of what they're going to do and post with it to kind of achieve that final image it's I do always find it amazing that, you know, we're all basically using the same tools and the same yeah, softwares, yeah. but you can still come up with different looks and aesthetics. And it, I think that's the hard part to describe or articulate from someone is like, how do you, how do you do your look? And it's just like, I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah, just it's something just, that's me. Yeah. yeah. It's just, that's maybe how it just feels right, right to me. Yeah. But then I still look around at so many other people and I go, oh, I wish my stuff looked like. That. totally <laughs> you know what i mean i, mean, I don't think we're made really truly ever happy with our own look i've been doing this for quite a while and yeah.
0: i've never felt really settled into a look which mm-hmm. i think is a, is actually a bit of a detriment the longer you spend experimenting and and having different yeah, you know, just varieties like this is what i could look like or this or this yeah can be a real challenge to people that would want to work with you because they don't know what to expect, right? Yeah. And like, I think yeah. people want to put, uh, um, not people, but like, yeah, people looking at your work or people looking to hire you want to put you into a box.
1: Yeah, we're and, hiring you for this because exactly, we yeah. saw that. But yeah. it, that's an interesting point because I think, you you know, as an artist, you, you truly, you do kind of evolve your look and it might change. And I do look at, you know, some of the things I used to think looked good i guess maybe i don't like as much anymore yeah. and um because i think my look kind of has evolved over time and so and i think it can evolve even monthly or even from project to project a little bit because you, you maybe want to try something new for this project do you use um, a light meter i you know i don't use a light meter um but i just actually did a workshop actually uh, learning to shoot on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I never actually had the, you know, the privilege or the luxury of, of, actually shooting anything on film. And so I, I, yeah, I got to learn how to use a light meter a little bit. And well, while you need to with that, yeah. because you're, you're metering, you for gigs, but yeah, you don't want to guess when it comes to film. Right. So I, I truly, you know, I, I light to a, a waveform and I look at a waveform for, yeah. for my exposure and kind of where the levels are are hitting with that. And then I think some of it does start to come down to experience a bit where you can start to look at it by eye or through the lens or through the camera and, and go like, yeah, I think we're kind of hitting the spots with it. But there's definitely been times I've you know lit a setup and then kind of looked at it and go like, oh, I okay, wish I could bring the whole, <laughs> all the levels up by like two stops and we'd probably be in that kind of sweet spot. But it's just like, we have no time to do that yeah, now right. and I just need to go. Or a lot of the time the so, problem be
0: you can't find like you don't have enough power say to hit a ratio especially yeah. if you're working with sunlight yeah well. you're like well i'd love for this other <laughs> totally. side to be twice as bright but i have no source that
1: totally um, or i need the you know 40 by 40 fly swatter yeah. in the sky with the big soft silk diffusion I on wish. this entire That's, scene or my something, whole life so so
0: is fun. wishing i had big diffusion everywhere i was like oh, i totally. always feel like i c- I could be a great <laughs> photographer if only there was a big diffuser with me everywhere I go. Everywhere, because right? <laughs> so often when I see behind the scenes of work that I'm a fan of. Yeah, I'm like, oh well, they had five that's, guys holding the giant you
1: know, that's how they did it Yeah, for right? photo or video or yeah or anything, no totally know? i feel like uh when i get to a point in my career and i feel like maybe i've made it a bit that's when i'm actually been able to to kind of pull out the, you know the 60 by 60 or 40 by 40 fly swatter uh diffusion over a scene and be able to just move it around as the scene plays well, so out and on, stuff,
0: on but, a budget more when you're just shooting outside do you have any typical like go-to's for how you control lighting uh yeah. In daylight, I, I mean it's you know, it's hard.
1: Yeah, no, daylight is hard. And I definitely um i found certain flavors of bounce, you know, like using uh like an unbleached muslin or more of a muslin and say like an ultra bounce or like a white card. Uh, it's just a little bit maybe more softer for a bouncing surface. And of I've, I've also over the years started to to learn about negative fill mm-hmm. and and really how to use negative fill if you can and and just where you know, where all that light source is spilling in from. And maybe it's, you know, not so much, you know, adding light to a scene, but where can you, like, actually take it away to give you that contrast level, right? right? So in knowing, you know, yeah, say the light's kind of coming in, generally I tend to always try and shoot backlit uh, with the sun and then kind of bounce it back in and then also uh, bring in some negative fill on one side of the face or... Well, yeah, so to keep it really
0: practical, what's happening to bounce that light? Do you have people holding a board and moving with the talent or what's happening? Yeah,
1: it kind of depends on the the size and scale of that, that setup that, you know, that bounce could be as, as big as like a, a 12 by 12, you know, bounce, but I know what it actually takes To bring, to put up those things. And then sometimes, you know, they just become big uh, sails in in the sky and are ready to blow over. So you suddenly need like. That's why you need a crew too. Yeah. There's people like they have to stake them down in the ground and you have to have people standing on the stands in case the wind kicks up. And you're just like, we don't have time to do that sometimes. So, so it could be as, as big as a, a you know, a. 12 by 12 or, you know, an eight by eight or something. Um, Generally though, like if it's just a a little bit of a smaller scene, one or two people, one person on, on camera, uh, even a four by four, uh, usually on a foam foam core um, kind of board and that it's, you know, the, my grip LX team is kind of pre-built those before we get out on the shoot. Um, Or sometimes it can just be as simple as um, having like a, a flex fill or something there as well and someone maybe is hand bombing it otherwise you know you try not to maybe two things have your crew so close to the actors that it's distracting and they're like standing right there so Mm -hmm. if you can put it on a stand uh, with like a quacker clamp or something and just like have it
0: there. I love the jargon that you got. That, I mean, that you are unaware of, but yeah. I keep thinking from terms of like people that aren't in the industry at all. A lot of it's like, what it's are like, these words? What are you talking
1: about? <laughs> well, and that's just, I think- Which is again, another one of those like benefit it. of like
0: working with the team. So, I mean- Yeah, like well, I, it
1: took me years to figure out what yeah. some of these things are. And I know there's still a ton that I don't know, right? Yeah. So, and that's why- I think, yeah, working with the team and then going like, this is the problem we have. Yeah, I know I would like to have some light from over there and, well, yeah. mount and it to the having that there. Language. How are we going to do it? Yeah, right? once you have those shortcuts, it's yeah. easier
0: to communicate these so, things that you just need
1: to say every day. Yeah, totally. So, and sometimes maybe you don't need to know that. I think maybe some DPs might feel a little apprehensive or unsure sometimes, but I think it ultimately, working with people who do know, you know, you might not know what a quacker clamp is or a scissor clamp or whatever, a cartellini or (laughs) something. I know that one. Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, you maybe you don't need to know that. You just know that I want a light hanging right there above my scene, Mm. kind of backlit and you guys do it. (laughs) You (laughs) know what I mean? Like and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I know I want it to be daylight. I know it to be a soft source. I just want, I don't want it spilling on the wall. So let's skirt it or whatever. Right. You just, those are the things that you need to know. And then, through time, like, you know, either ask them or pay attention to what they're talking about of how to, to rig it up. They might throw some ideas out to you and you'd be like, that oh, that sounds great. Let's see how it turns out. And then if it doesn't turn out, you'd be like, okay, well, I know next time that maybe I, we won't employ that way methodology of doing it or something. Right. So I
0: have always had a feeling that what I enjoy about video, like a lot of what attracts me to it, even though I kind of was already succeeding in photography. I still wanted to do video all the time, and the draw to me is that it's hard. Like it's it's harder than photography. Did you did you do photography first at all? Like, do you and do you have that? Am I wrong? Like, it is it is just like take
1: photography and turn up the hardness level to. I, th- I think a little bit. I I never I, I shot photos before. I didn't you know consider myself a photographer. I guess first. Um, but I, I definitely enjoyed doing it. And I think that's over the last six, seven, eight years, I've I've enjoyed doing that more. And sometimes I've even thought to myself, like, yeah, like I was just even on a shoot today and there were some photographers doing behind the scenes and then there's us with all our video gear and we're at the top of a ski hill and it's just like a turn around they got one backpack and we've got like... <laughs> 10 cases and stuff. And you're just like, yeah, sometimes I wish maybe I was a photographer because (laughs) (laughs) let alone the size of the equipment we use or and just to, to get around with it. But I think it is, it is, I don't want to, you know, discount photography that it's easy. It's not, but at the same time, there's, you know, with, with video and moving pictures, you, there's a, a lot more thinking about those 24 images per second or sometimes more, but generally 24 images per second and, and kind of a start and finish and and where the camera moves. And I think there's maybe less margins for error, and it's a little more tricky to get each one of those takes Yeah, think uh, think about just right, working in know, a large the, room.
0: Like, let's say you've yeah. got a, a big space that you want to work with, even just in a living room of a house yeah if you want to light that whole space yeah um first of all you can't use flash so now all of your power needs to be constant so all the lights that you have stay on all the time and you need to power that constantly yeah and then your camera's probably gonna move throughout the scene at some times so you can't have dead spots where it looks terrible from this angle and good from this other angle whereas in photography it's like set up once yeah, that, and there and there it is. Well, um, but just, I mean, it's not—it's yeah. not a contest. I, like, obviously, no, both these things exist. Yeah. Um, but I like—I've just always enjoyed that. Like, there's—it always feels like I'm so far away from mastering video. Like, it—it oh. is beyond scope of anybody's lifetime. I to really. Uh, I,
1: yeah. I don't think anyone will feel like they've ever truly mastered it, and I think that's a great thing. Like, I heard even you know in an article or somewhere i forget where i read it but you know roger Deacons to this day like first day on set he's putting his eye in the eyepiece and he's just like i don't know what the fuck i'm doing <laughs> and it's just like yeah. yeah i think we all kind of have that feeling but i'm always kind of blown away even just going back to into that living room setup is i i do try and for me go oh, i'm gonna light this uh so my actors can just move freely and then when we you know come in for a close-ups or coverage or you know whatever or over-overs there's not much work that you have to be done but i'm always blown away how much i still tweak the hell out of like each one of those setups to still kind of match the room and the look and the aesthetic but it's not as simple as just like okay well it's just We've got her wide. Now let's just put the camera and shoot it over on this shoulder. You're well, still gonna like. It is totally bring in your world. Look, bring, if you're a YouTuber, like it's, it's it is crazy. that simple.
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because like, yeah, it, it, yeah, it just totally I, depends. I kind of wish doing. it
1: was that simple, but yeah. as soon as you come in there with the camera, you're just like, you look at so many things. You're like, okay, I need you know, 20 minutes to tweak this.
0: I can see that stand <laughs> in the mirror.
1: <laughs> yeah, or it's just. You can, I don't know if you can get away with a lot more on a wide, but as soon as you start getting in tighter and tighter on a scene, you kind of want to bring that lighting world in tighter and tighter. And you kind of want to tweak around either where, you know, a backlight or your key might be, or like, that's definitely when you start bringing in like probably more negative fill and stuff, because you can't really maybe have that, all that stuff in the wide. Yeah. It's, it just, it always surprises me how much. I'd love to see the behind the
0: scenes for Birdman because of that. Because yeah. of those long, long shots, and they're lighting, like, dark interiors. Totally. And all of it's got to be practical. It's all got to be, any light source has to be basically visible in the shot. Yeah. That, that'd be a really interesting challenge, and I'd love to see how they did that. Or, I mean, there's other films like it.
1: Yeah, there there is a couple of videos on YouTube, actually, that show some of the, you know, especially the cut cut points, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was one I watched, and it, it was really great about showing, like, you know, the camera pans down a hallway and there's a character like walking away that's not part of the scene and then they pan back. But that was totally a cut point. Sure, yeah. You know, and I mean some of them are a little more simple. It's, it's dark, a dark spot. Yeah. yeah, we cut through a dark and we back out or something, right? But but then there's some of them where you're just like, okay, yeah, that 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 was a cut point. Yeah, that <laughs> right. makes sense now that you showed it to mm-hmm. me. But I never in watching it the first time would have thought that was maybe a cut point there right. or something, right? So so they definitely broke it down into more beats that way that were more controllable like you know this hallway to this hallway Uh, but at the same time it was obviously like pretty amazing what they pulled off with something like that. yeah it doesn't have to be one shot to be impressive yeah but but like you said like hiding the lighting in practicals and and i think that's even one thing too is you know i actually watched sharp objects uh that hbo show that just came out this past i think summer Mm -hmm. Uh, i finally had a chance to sit down and watch it and i was just like blown away a, how good it is in the story. But I I was reading the um, Canadian cinematographer's article about it, and they used no movie, no film lights hmm. doing that one. It was entirely practical. Cool. And that was uh, a big choice of the, the director and his, his approach to that. He's actually a French-Canadian guy. I forget his name right now, which I should totally know. But was it wasn't also, shot in Canada, though, was it? It was, actually. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: Now I feel like I have to watch it.
1: Yeah, unless I'm... Mistaken by that, it's two uh, French Canadian DPS as right, well, okay. and they alternated, and they were kind of both DPing it. I did see in the credits there were some, I believe, some Ontario or Quebec tax credits. So, <laughs> so, anyway, maybe that was co-production. Maybe they shot some of it there. Maybe, it was, maybe I think they did a little bit of studio stuff, which I didn't even realize. Which now someone told me that and I'm like, but they didn't use any film lights. So how did they shoot it in a studio? Anyway, <laughs> they
0: just use the studio. Of, uh, yeah. It is just all the studio lights. lights. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know about well, that. They,
1: so all oh, the practical occasions, they were all practical lights. And it yeah. was, it was just how it, the point of my story of that was just getting to those practical lights. And sometimes maybe just more learning how to control even the practicals that are in the mm-hmm. room to your advantage. And you're still lighting, but just maybe not with film lights, but you're just, you're controlling where your pockets of lights are going to be. And, that's
0: been yeah, yeah. just a crazy change in the world lately. In addition to YouTube opening up a whole world of filmmaking, now suddenly TV looks as good as movies. Yeah, which is crazy. I've been watching uh, Mr. Robot lately, which is a simple drama. It doesn't have to look good, yeah. but it
1: does. It looks yeah. really good and it's some very interesting framing and composition and, yeah, and all Yeah, all this yeah.
0: stuff. And you're like, you know, this like this is a plot driven, like plot and character driven simple story like the locations aren't that interesting but Mm -hmm. all of a sudden tv can be adventurous and they're using good cameras and they uh have you know great cinematographers working for them so actually all of a sudden there's just a lot more room for dps in the world (laughs) there's a lot more jobs available where you can actually do good work
1: i i totally agree And and to that note i'm still kind of blown away how much i guess all those networks and new places like say like netflix and amazon and hulu or crave whatever how much content there is out there and they're still producing it and they're still they're
0: still getting bigger and apple's getting into it and so is facebook
1: yeah like i I didn't realize facebook was. i knew apple was and actually they're doing a big series that actually has a a very similar budget to like a game of thrones in terms Mm -hmm. of like they're spending 10 to 12 million dollars per episode for Mm -hmm. this one series i know they're doing where you know game of thrones were spending you know five eight million dollars whatever depending on the episode but uh and that was the most expensive production in the world right now it was game of thrones and now all of a sudden apple's getting into it and they're willing to throw that kind of money per episode to something like that is crazy right like they're going to spend 120 30 million dollars on this but then you start to look at like yeah a feature film sometimes can have those kind of budgets and somehow still go make, you know, seven, six, <laughs> eight hundred million yeah. dollars, yeah. you know, on the, on that. But yeah, it just did with the amount of content being created out there. I'm just I'm still amazed there is actually, um, I guess, a market for that. And thank God, I guess there is because it maybe gives us jobs in and in a place to go do that especially you may even like getting on a rant here but you think about like the music industry and maybe kind of what's happened with that uh, as you know music kind of became free if you will or more subscription based i have to think that you know video and tv film will kind of maybe follow that model a bit and it makes me wonder a bit of kind of the future of that
0: well, Nick, I can't Enough wait to see your bit. Netflix series uh,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coming soon, I hope. Oh, I'd love to do a Netflix series. Where can, still uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, so back to uh, the nickthomasdp.com is my website. And then... Uh, on Instagram, quite a bit. So uh, my handle there is Nick Thomas. Actually,
0: that gives me one more thing to say is that yeah. I think that there's this often there's a separation between commercial, like working photographers and cinematographers, and social media. That like a lot of the like a lot of our friends in Calgary that do like commercial, especially I'm thinking of photographers, yeah. aren't super active on say Instagram, right. And there's often a gap, and I don't really get it. Like, yeah.
1: The, the, Do you feel like some people are like either into Instagram or yeah, or others just it's like it's an either or, just, or sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. There's no maybe like happy medium. Well, and it's not that or there isn't.
0: I mean, I, I think you have a fantastic Instagram. Um, what's his name that did The Revenant? The deep like Chivo. Chivo. Emmanuel yeah. Libisky. He has a great uh, Instagram yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Deakins doesn't.
1: <laughs> I don't he, think he does have an Instagram. He just doesn't curate it. I don't that. Look at it yeah, it's. Yeah, it's okay. okay. Um there's it's actually amazing. I, I do follow a ton of great DPs on Instagram and for me it is just like constant inspiration. Who should I follow? Can you give me a great recommendation? Oh. <laughs> I I don't know. Not off the top I, of your head. I, yeah, I'll have to send the links in the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's honestly like too many that I just like it's almost like that thing where I used to watch like a lot of Vimeo videos and be just like why do you even need me? There's like <laughs> Thousands of good people making great content out here. And then suddenly you're on Instagram and you're just like, man, there's like so many good people out here. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. It's, i found it a good place for inspiration, but I also find like, you know, Instagram is a good place. I've definitely made a lot of great, you know, contacts online on there and, and worked with some great colorists from like, you know, company three to the mill yeah among others uh, but just you know made some good you know kind of industry connections that are just based yeah. on kind of reaching out to each other and and i think that's great as, as part of that community is it, it starts to feel a little small but maybe i wonder is it just kind of us all Instagrammers all following and liking each other in a way but i i do feel like there you know it is a real thing i guess if you will in terms of like the artists on there and you know putting their work out there
0: cool man thanks for coming on yeah, yeah
1: thanks so much man. cheers